Thank you for listening to this recording of one of the sermons at Christ Presbyterian Church in Milford, Connecticut. The sermon is one part of our public worship on Sundays at Christ Presbyterian Church, Milford. While much of the sermon has broad application, it is directed specifically to the congregation here in Milford and reflects our lives, needs, concerns, and context. We think it's important to note that the sermon follows many other aspects of worship, praise, singing, confession of sins and absolution, scripture reading, and sometimes a baptism or the reception of new members. It precedes prayers, confessions of faith, an offering, and our celebration of the Lord's Supper. All of these are integrated and ideally should not be separated. We're particularly concerned not to separate word and sacrament. By its nature, the sermon calls for a response, receiving the Lord's Supper with the accompanying prayers, reflections, and life of response and community. If you're not a part of Christ's presence, Milford, we hope the sermon is helpful to you and propels you to a full worship and engagement with Jesus' body in your own community. A reading from Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause, all their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ben Sheldon, for those of you who I have not met yet. And I'm one of the new church planters with Mission Anabino out of Christ Pres in New Haven. And so I've gotten to know Kern a little bit the last several months, and he uh, gave me the honor of inviting me to preach to you all while he's on vacation at a conference down in New Orleans. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited and thankful for the opportunity to bring God's word to you this morning. As you can infer from our scripture reading, I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 56. And Psalm 56 is, uh, it's a psalm that we can relate to at many times in our life. But I think particularly now, in, in many of our experiences, the last several years, this uh, pandemic situation, our, our lack of unity in our country, there's a lot of reason for anxiety, for fear, for a lack of trust. And so looking to the God who we can trust, which is the theme of this psalm, is a timely message. Um, you'll, you'll notice if you do have your English Bible that the, the translators of this psalm have titled this psalm, In God I Trust. 
And for the reasons we, we just mentioned, that's, that's a good title. Uh, but that phrase is also famous in our own history as a country because the phrase, in God we trust, is on, on all of our coins and bills. And although most of us likely don't use coins and bills anymore, we know what they are. But it says, in God we trust. And that phrase came about on our, on our bills, on our coinage in 1864. The end of the Civil War, Congress anticipating the end of the war, they sought to unify the country with a phrase that everyone could appeal to, in God we trust. And yet today, social, social researchers highlight the loss of trust in our society, not just in God, but in institutions, in people, in even our neighbors. There's a lack of trust. We don't need to look too far to prove that point. Trust has declined. And yet, in this psalm, David describes a picture, he paints a picture of God who is trustworthy. And that comforts him in the face of the fear and the grief he was experiencing. He displays a trust that's worthy of our attention in an age of trustlessness. David is a representative of God's people here. We can read this psalm, we can hear this psalm, and it gives us, a, the people of God, the gathered people of God, it gives us a picture of God who is for his people. We don't read this and just think, this was David's story, this, it, I haven't experienced these same things that David has. It's for God's people. Psalms are meant to shape the people of God. They're meant to shape how we think about ourselves in relationship to God. They also paint pictures and give us images of God's character. And this particular psalm, we're given this image of God as a God who's for his people. Because God is for his people, we can trust him. We need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded of this trust. In the face of fear, uncertainty, even death, we need to be reminded that God is for his people, that he's worthy of our trust. This psalm is for any member of God's people who need to be reminded, who need to be exhorted, comforted, that God is for them when they're afraid that God is for them when they're at the end of themselves. But it begs a question, and this is the question we're going to be answering this morning. How does God show himself to be for his people? How does God show himself trustworthy? That's the question that we're going to bring to the text this morning. But before we do so, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've recorded accounts of your trustworthiness in your scripture. May we be attentive to your Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning and as your gathered people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how does God show himself to be for his people? If you, if you look at verses 1 through 4, there's a lot of images. There's a lot of uh, fearful images. A, oppressor, enemies attacking proudly, men trampling. And David's crying out from a place of helplessness, of weakness, He's afraid. And then comes this great refrain in verse 3, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. This psalm, we're, we, we know from, from the title, uh, that we didn't read this morning, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretext for the psalm. And we're told it corresponds to the historical events in David's life, which are accounted in 1 Samuel 21, when David fleeing Saul 
falls into the hands of the Philistines. And so he, he was afraid. It was an out of the fire, into the frying pan type situation for David. And his response, recounted in this psalm, is an act of faith. He was afraid. And I think we need to name something about fear here because as we've just pointed out that trust is at an all-time low, or at least in our perception it is decreasing in our society, fear is increasing. There's more fear. And the New York Times did a study last year and found that over 80% of Americans were somewhat to very fearful that the next generation would be worse off than the previous one. And as a millennial, I'm fond of of pointing out to uh, the baby boomers within my my family that, hey, the millennials are the first generation that are going to end their lives with less material stuff than the previous generation. And I'm being slightly tongue-in-cheek. That perhaps might be a good thing. But it's an example of this sense of, hey, things are not necessarily on the continual incline of more stuff and more assets and more... Uh, material wealth, there's reason for fear in our society. Bringing it closer to home, 60% of that same survey were somewhat very fearful of being unable to speak their minds, unable to freely express their beliefs. Fear is increasing in our society, and, and that's why this response of David and his fear and what it teaches us about God is so important for us, and really for anyone who wants to know the antidote to fear. See, his fears were existential. He feared for his life. We know that he, he was the Lord's anointed, that this historical event in his, lap, in his life happened after that encounter with Samuel when he, was, he, he got the hint, hey, you're going to be uh, uh, the Lord's anointed. This was be- that was before David and Goliath. But here he is being pursued, maligned, attacked. It doesn't seem like this plan that was prophesied is coming into place. He was at the end of his rope. And his response in this crisis was to lean on the character of God. To come to him in faith. Trusting that God was for him. And this is a really important part of this text. Notice in verse 4, and this is a phrase that's twice repeated in the psalm. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. He grounds the basis of his trust and who God has shown himself to be in his word. That phrase, whose word I praise, what can flesh do to me? David, at his most fearful, appeals to who God has shown himself to be through his word. And it's there, it's in scripture, that we too come to God in faith to see his trustworthiness, to see that he protects us, to see that he is for his people. God has shown himself trustworthy and faithful throughout Scripture. And that's where we can find the basis, where David finds the basis in the face of real fear to say, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. So how does God show he's for his people in their fears? He shows himself trustworthy through his word. In facing uncertainty, in facing loss, in facing uh, fear for what the future holds, In the face of what makes you most afraid, God can be trusted because of his word. 
And this is a moment of reflection for all of us. Do you trust who God has shown himself to be through his word? Many of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we affirm and we just beautifully recounted in the absolution of sins. We believe in this God who has forgiven us of our sins. Do we, do we trust Him to provide for all of our needs? We can mentally assent to this, uh, the belief that we have been saved by grace through faith. Sometimes it can be a little bit more difficult to trust Him in our material needs, in the needs for our health, for our family. As we mentioned, it, it may be... Uh, it may be difficult for us to relate completely to David's experience in 1 Samuel 21, but we've all felt fear. This pandemic we're in, not to beat a dead horse, I know that the pandemic is a favorite illustration because it's something we all are experiencing together, but it's kind of caused this low, slow, long-burning fear that's caused anger, depression, anxiety, uncertainty. Do you have the type of relationship with God and with, and with the gathered people with God, with, with the people that you're in communion with, the type of faith that can go to God with trust when you're, you're most fearful? It's a question I've been reflecting on as I've been preparing that God is for His people in the way He protects them. And that's a reason to trust Him, even in the face of these fears and, and this uncertainty that we're experiencing. Good way of applying this to ourself is reflecting. How are the ways that you've seen God protect you in your life, in your family's life? David could say, This I know, God is for me. When I'm afraid, I trust in God whose word I praise. He was reflecting on personal experiences, but also on the shared experience of the people of God. We have access by faith to that same source of comfort and confidence in the face of fear and anxiety. How has God protected you? How has God protected your family? God shows himself to be for his people in the way he protects his people. The second way God shows himself in this psalm to be for his people is, is in the way he cares for them. If you look at verse 8, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but I won't skip at all. Verse 8, he's, David writes, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? We're led to infer here that the questions David's asking are, in fact, rhetorical. The answer's implied, yes. God will record the account of his grief, the account of his tears. The sense that the psalmist gives us here is about the character of God. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He's not uncaring. He is there, and he cares. We see in this moment, David, uh, as he reaches out for, for God, he's comforted by the fact that God cares even about the anxiety and fear that he's facing. His tears, his sleepless nights, his tossings, God knows them all. But in verse 7, there's another rhetorical question just before, and David asks, for their crime will they escape, these people who've been hunting him down. For their crime will they escape, 
In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. The answer is no, they won't escape. And we know that from the story of Scripture, but also David praying this in this moment points to the fact that God's comfort and grief, his comfort in the face of fear, happens in conjunction with his punishment of those who cause his people grief, with those who sin against him. This also brings us back to the trustworthiness of God because God's presence during times of grief and trial, we should never limit it to merely a a motto like God is in control. That's true, and we affirm that. But His presence is more than that. God's presence on display here in this psalm is one of attentiveness and concern. God records the tears of His people. He knows all the tossings and turnings of anxiety, fear, and grief. He sees it. He remembers it. Jesus in Matthew 10 points to this care of the Lord when He says that even the hairs on your head are all numbered. I highlight that connection here because the God who knows an intimate detail, like how many hairs on your head do you have? He knows each of our tears, each of our tossings. God is for their people in their grief. During college, Allison and I uh, did a a study, a study abroad year in Jerusalem. And during the spring of that year, we visited a church on the Mount of Olives, and it's called Dominus Flavit, which is a Latin name that means the Lord's Tears. And the church is built historically on the site that church tradition says Jesus wept over Jerusalem for the lost sheep of Israel. The church was built in 1955, but archaeology has shown that there's been a church there for quite some time. But this church is designed to look like a teardrop to represent the tears that Jesus shed for the city of Jerusalem. And at each corner of that church, there is a tear vial on the roof. And that tear vial is meant to signify the type of tear vials that first century mourners would leave at a grave to show their grief. Vials filled with tears. I don't, you couldn't ask me about the mechanics of how that happened, but that was a feature of that ancient world. And it's a striking image because it connects us to the historical example of Jesus in his humanity weeping real tears on the Mount of Olives. In our psalm, David's appealing to the same character trait of God, that compassion, that caring nature of God. God cares about the tears and the tossings of his people. And if you're like me, and you may not be, which is a good thing, but I don't like to cry that often. And I used to joke with Allison, I think I've only cried this many times in my adult life. Well, I've now come to realize that's not a good thing. That's a, in a sense, that can be a defect because tears are an expression of grief for things not being the way they're supposed to be. It's an expression of grief for the world being tainted by sin. We're not supposed to have a world in which there's pandemics, wars, death, sickness, broken relationships. God knows these tears that we have. We're lamenting that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. 
We can have tears for many things. Tears for our children. You, you, you've graciously invited us in with our young kids here today. And Allison and I often look to each other in exasperation. We, we don't want our kids to fight with each other. Um, and I'm, I'm not using them specifically as examples. It was a, a general <laughs> kid example. And, uh, but, you know, we also can have tears for adult children. Tears for children who have not embraced the faith that they were raised with. We can have tears for the waning health of our parents, of our spouses. Despite the, the many stimulus uh, payments that many of us received, that our country received last year, there's still financial fears. That's a cause for lamenting. It's a cause for strain in many people's lives. There's political strife in our country that can cause a sense of exasperation, even amongst the body of Christ. In the midst of all of this, it is right to have tears for these things. Not only is it right to lament these things, but there's a great comfort in knowing that God is for His people in our grief. He counts every tear. This is affirmed in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5. Cast your anxieties upon the Lord, for He cares for you. Oftentimes that's a verse that we hear when we're anxious or when we're fearful. We, we can meditate on that. But it's connected to the whole story of Scripture, that God is a God who cares for His people. And yet, His character is consistent. We would only admire and desire this caring personality trait of the Lord if it was consistent. So the flip side of the book of tears is that God does not forget the evil done to his people. God doesn't turn a blind eye to injustice. David prays it. His wrath will be brought down on evil doers. So a companion question to are you comforted by God's care for you in grief is are you comforted? We have to to zoom out and include a larger perspective of that word comforted. Are you comforted by the wrath of God against sin and evil? That can be a harder thought to contemplate, especially if you have never experienced something personally that would cause you to pray an imprecatory prayer against our enemies. But we can look to many places in the world to see our brothers and sisters do have the types of experiences in which they are comforted by the fact that God is ultimately a God of justice. And we, as their brothers and sisters in Christ, connected to Christians all over the world, are a part of that same body of Christ who want to see the consistency of God's character. God is for His people in His care for them. And that is a reason to trust Him. God also shows himself to be for his people in how he delivers his people. And that's our final point this morning. God shows himself to be a God who delivers. Deliverance in the psalm comes at the end. If, if you look at verse 12, David writes, I must perform my vows to you, O God, for I will render thank offerings to you, for you've delivered my soul from death. One commentator writes that the natural consequence of verse 9 which when, where David says, this I know, that God is for me, the natural consequence of that is David having the assurance of the salvation he will receive. 
He says, this I know, God is for me. He has full confidence. His trust in God is based in the fact that God is for him. Now, as we mentioned earlier, uh, reflecting on areas in your life where you've seen God show up as, as a protecting God, David also had experience upon experience of deliverance that happened in his own life. And if you know the story of David, you can just think, um, how many wild animals, giants, battles, strife, God had showed up time and time again. So when he prays to God with assurance that his soul will be delivered, he does so from the place of having experienced it before. He has a confidence that God will deliver him. And I think that's something we can relate to at a core level. Uh, think about someone who has always shown up for you. Think about somebody who has always been there when you wanted them or needed them to be there. For me, it was my dad uh, flying into the Philadelphia airport, coming back from trips or from wherever, oh, and, and sometimes before I had a cell phone, I just knew my dad would be outside baggage claim. That's a small example, but that's a picture of someone who you just rely on someone to show up for you. Think about it, the, the converse of that. If, you, if someone's betrayed your trust, it's easy to lose that sense of trust and say, I can't rely on this person. But for David, he had experience of God of always showing up. And he also didn't only have that from his own life. That's the theme of Scripture. It's a, it's a major theme in Scriptures. The entire story of the Exodus is one of God who delivered his people, delivered them out of the hands of Egypt, led them through the wilderness into the land of Canaan. So David and we, as the people of God, we can lean on this history as our history, as having seen God show up time and time again. And of course, the redemptive story of the Bible leads to the greatest example of God's deliverance. Not being from physical death, not just being from the fear that we would face at the hands of another human being, but a deliverance from the consequences of our own sin. Again, in Matthew 10, Jesus says, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. God delivers his people from sin through Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's greatest display of God's showing up for his people. God is the God of deliverance for his people through salvation in Jesus. That's good news. That's exciting, but it doesn't end there. David's response is, is, is instructive for us. He, he makes vows, he performs thanksgiving, and he says this in verse 13, For you've delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This is a really important point for us as those who have been justified and made a part of God's family is that our response of walking in the light of life, our response of obeying God, only comes as a result of God's salvation of us, comes as a result of His deliverance of us. God sets the agenda. He's the creator. He's the potter. As Paul uses that metaphor in Romans, he's the potter, we're the clay. His salvation is a gift. And even our faith to be able to respond in obedience to him, respond in walking in this light of life, that's a gift. 
It's a gift that He enables in us. So we should never think to ourselves, I haven't been delivered yet because I haven't been faithful. The story of Scripture teaches us the opposite of that. God is faithful to us in our salvation. He's faithful to us in delivering us. Our response is to obey Him and walk in this light of life. God saves. We respond in trust in a life of repentance and faith. He's the potter and we're the clay. Well, do do you believe? Do you believe this? Do you believe that this God is for you? How has God showed up in your life? That question we asked a moment ago, reflect on that. How has God shown himself to be trustworthy in deliverance that you've experienced? Yes, in your salvation and your faith, but also throughout the circumstances and mundane elements of our lives, God has shown himself to be trustworthy. He's shown himself to be a God who delivers. A way of asking this is maybe a, a, a diagnostic tool for our own souls is where do you place your trust the most when you're at your most fearful? When you're most in need of deliverance, where do you place your trust? Where do you first look to? And, and because you won't see me for a while, I, can, I guess I can give you an example and you can uh, take it or leave it. Uh, I often, when I'm, when I'm under strain or when I'm looking for a sense of deliverance, I look to my own desire for respect. I look to my own desire to look for the ways that I know I've earned the respect of those who should be showing me respect, etc., etc., etc. It takes a while, but I have to be brought down off of that self-reliance. I'm looking for my deliverance there. I'm looking for that sense of that sense of control over whatever experience I'm facing through my desire for the respect of others. What is it for you? Where do you look for deliverance when you're at your most fearful or when you're at your most, when you're at the end of yourself? You know, we, we mentioned uh, earlier being justified by God's grace, an act of His grace, being made a part of His family. We, can, we, we, we affirm that. We can explain it to others. But have you ever been in the position within your Christian walk when you think, I know who I believe, I know I've been saved, but I just feel stuck here. I feel stuck in this particular sin. The same relationships are hurting. I know I'm justified by grace through faith alone, but it doesn't seem like I'm walking in the light of life. Well, the ending of this psalm, the purpose of God's deliverance is that we might walk before God in the light of life. God's deliverance of you in Jesus Christ, your continued walking in Him, your continued trusting Him. It's a process of God bringing us through, we call it sanctification, but it's bringing us into a deeper understanding of His promises and day by day renewing us and changing us into who we've been created to be. It's this kind of trust that can give us the basis to say, in God I trust. If you're here this morning and the thought of trusting God is just a bridge too far or someone in your life that you know, they know these things about God, but the thought of trusting Him, it's just, it's not attractive. Well, let's continue to pray that the Holy Spirit would draw our brothers and sisters, our family members, 
to a saving knowledge of him in Jesus Christ because God is a God who delivers. And he's not done working yet. He's not done yet working in our own hearts. He's not done working in the hearts of our family members. And this last thing about this phrase at the end of the psalm, that I might walk before God in the light of life. Jesus uses the same phrase in John chapter 8 when he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Another commentator points out that this is not just an appeal to an eternal heavenly bliss. Of course, that is our ultimate promise of of life in eternity when all things will be set right. But that walking in the light of life is also for the rest of this earthly life. God desires us to live now as He created us to live. And He teaches us and enables that through Jesus. God's deliverance is not a cold-hearted one. It's not a begrudging salvation. It's not something that He does with an air of indignation towards us. He desires us to walk with Him in the light of life, to live as we were intended to live. So how do we live this way? How do we walk in the light of life? We trust in Him. We know and seek His Word so that we too can say with confidence, when I am afraid, I will trust in You, my God whose Word I praise. God's protection, His care, His deliverance, it's all His grace. There's nothing that you or I could ever do to earn that. It's His grace that we're called to walk before Him. So brothers and sisters, won't you join with me to look to our Lord in trust, knowing that He's for you. He's for us as His people, and He delivers us from fear, delivers us from death. He has made us His own. That's a reason to celebrate and to join with the psalmist in saying, this I know, that God is for me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You are a God who has saved us, and one who has shown himself to be trustworthy. Lord, thank you for loving us and for gathering us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.